This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. So I started to really pay attention to my body, understand what I was feeling. Then I also realized that as my body was healing, if there was a step back, emotionally I would get a little bit distraught. So I started to pay attention to my emotions as well. And I realized that there was a great value there of actually paying attention and allowing the waves of emotion to roll through me. And if I didn't fight that process, then my body would go into a big healing step forward. Welcome to the new and improved 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll discuss the factors driving the purpose-built rental market. We'll find out about a mindset for curing chronic pain. We'll learn about healthy holistic traveling. And lastly, we'll debate reasonable expectations for your yogi. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show. Nice to be back. So we've been talking over the last uh, many months about the rental real estate market and, you know, what it takes to build a building, but we haven't really discussed, you know, what is driving both the supply and the demand for residential real estate. And that's something that interests me. So I've identified some potential issues and I want to go through them with you and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Okay. Sure. Fantastic. Okay. So a lot of what drives building as I understand it is the investment, right? You source capital from various places and if the return is high enough, I presume they'd be interested in in building apartments. Is that right? Well, part of the challenge in Toronto is the competition, for lack of a sort of a better way of explaining it, the competition between building condo and building rental. Right. Right? I mean, every time a real estate investor looks at a residentially zoned piece of land for a high-rise building, it depends, first of all, what their main business is, right? Lots yep. of people don't do rental because they're different. You talk about capital structure, they're different businesses. Some people are condo developers, and they do project after project of condo. And it's not a, a long-term investment like an apartment building is. You buy a piece of land, you do the marketing, you pre-sell, and then you get your financing based on the sales that you've done. Right. And you build the building, and uh, at the end of the day, you sell it. The difference is your profit, and it's quite highly taxable because it's really like any other business. It's the sale of inventory, right? right? There's really no sheltering of tax but it's a business that people get in and out of the same way home builders, you know, build homes uh, in the suburbs. 
Building an apartment building is a long-term investment. Some people are building them for resale, but most people look at them as low-return, long-term investments, but they're attracted to them because they're really stable. Right. So an institutional investor like a pension fund has certain priorities in terms of where they're putting their money. And if they want it to remain safe, perhaps they want to move out of the condo market and into the apartment building market, because as you say, it's a safer, longer term investment. Right. And most of our major institutions like pension fund institutions in Canada can't be active in the condo business because they're non-taxable entities, right? So Ah, they're looking for opportunities to build apartment buildings, but they're often you know, uh, outbid by condo developers who say, you know, I see opportunity in this piece of land. A lot of that is driven by, well, by a number of things. But first of all, low interest rates have been fantastic for allowing people to uh, sort of live their dream of owning their home. Right. So that's been the positive, but it's also been the challenge of uh, standing in the way of building more rental. A lot of land gets bought up so that people can build condos. And, you know, it's a great end result, but it doesn't help in terms of building the apartment inventory. Right. Let's switch over to the demand side. So demographics, right? Like uh, baby boomers, the Zoomers are getting older uh, and they may want to downsize. So if you have a single family dwelling, maybe you don't want the upkeep. I I presume that's driving on matters on the demand side, right? I think so. Some people want to own their home. So, you know, there are people who say, I'm selling my house for a lot of money and I'm going to go out and I'm going to take some or most of these proceeds and invest it in a condominium and live there for the long term. Other people may be in a different mindset. They may not be sure that they're going to love high-rise living. They may say, perhaps I want to retire to somewhere else in the future, and I I don't necessarily want to buy a condo. I'd like to keep the flexibility so that I could travel more. And if I find somewhere that I travel to that I want to move to permanently, then I've got that option. So, you know, condos aren't for everybody. And there are a lot of uh, empty nesters who have looked at the rental market. And part of the challenge has been, You know, there's a big difference between rental from two generations ago when we were building it, the lion's share of our inventory in the 60s, and what people see as a modern space to live in. Right. When we were building apartment buildings in the 60s, suites were a little bigger, but most didn't have air conditioning. Most didn't have in-suite washer dryers. Most didn't have dishwashers. Most had, you know, less open space than they do. They had less amenities. And it was in a different time. A lot of those buildings were built. And then over the last 40 years have settled into a certain level of service because of the different legislation that's gone and changed over the years. So it's hard for someone until they see great new apartment buildings being built to sort of aspire to say, I want to be in a new apartment building. But I think over the last three or four years, we're starting to see projects that are attractive for people to say, wow, you know, in some ways, not only I'm getting something, you know, comparable to a condo, in some ways I'm getting more. And I think that's a really good alternative that didn't exist in a meaningful way a few years ago. I agree. Let, let's explore the other end of the demographic spectrum. So that's addressing the empty nesters, the people that are just coming into the market. I've been reading a lot about the prospects for millennials in terms of home ownership. You know, I'm reading that many of them are just saying, okay, that may not be an option for us. And they're more comfortable with renting in the long term, as opposed to necessarily getting right into the condo market and then going to single family. Are you seeing that as well? I for sure am. I think millennials 
face a tremendous number of sort of questions in their life and pressures, sure. right? Yep. Where am I going to be working? What am I going to be doing? Do I need to be flexible in terms of where I live and how I live, right? So there are lots of young people who, who may need to move for a job, either within the GTA to be closer to their work or uh, outside the city or from outside to the city and say, Am I going to be here long-term? Am I going to be here short-term? So I think there's a flexibility in rental that's great. I also think, as you say, things have become expensive. Job security for a lot of people is a concern. Living somewhere where you have a nice surrounding but not having to invest long-term and wondering, do I qualify for a mortgage? Uh, What's it like to be part of a condominium where I need to be involved in a community from an active management and investment perspective? Uh, That flexibility, I mean, for a generation that seems to be comfortable uh, using car share seems to make sense. Yep. Okay, so we've looked at supply, we've looked at demand. Let's look at regulation for a bit or the other players, other stakeholders. There are communities or cities or municipalities that are sort of getting involved through planning processes and ratepayers groups, etc., which sort of impact on what can be built and where investment monies are going, right? There are. You know, Toronto uh, has talked for a while and continues to talk about how do we, you know, induce people to building more rental. And we've yet to see anything meaningful in terms of helping people to make sense of building rental, which is why I think what you're seeing is you're seeing rental built in some of the most uh, expensive parts of town where rents are approaching uh, economic rents and you can make sense of a project. But there needs to be far more incentive to get people to build rental in all locations. So, you know, there are tax incentives, there are development charge incentives, there are adding more height and density to developers. There are a number of ways that people can work together to try to increase the supply of rental. Uh, I think there's a lot of smart minds thinking about it, but we haven't seen anything meaningful yet. There are lots of great cities that, that have done more to try to help it. We're getting there, but I don't see it yet. So I think what you're seeing driving rental at the moment is there's a tremendous amount of immigration to the city. Yes. Um, there's great employment. There's lots of people uh, who are doing well. And there are areas where rents make sense to build rental. So, you know, that's good. But I think it only addresses part of the market, and we need substantially more in terms of supply than we're getting right now. So are you saying currently there, there isn't a taxation framework that's favorable for, for building rental as opposed to condo? There isn't, which is why we, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, you know, there's this continued competition between lands being seen viable as long as there are buyers for condos and low interest rates. You know, the, the two compete, and it would be nice to tilt it a little more in favor of rental if we really feel that there's a need for more rental inventory. And I think the statistics and the outcry from different demographic groups and all levels of government is that we do need more rental. And as much as the Canadian dream is to sort of help home ownership, and I think that's meaningful, we need to fill uh, other gaps for new Canadians, for people without the stability of income, uh, and for people who want the flexibility. And there could be a lot more. Talking about different levels of government, let's let's speak municipally for a second, because I was sort of referencing that back when I talk about sort of stakeholders. Is the city doing anything one way or another to encourage rental buildings? Like from uh, a planning perspective or even from a committee of adjustment or how they're dealing at, at with the, the moment, changes? In Toronto, there's no real recognition of a difference between the tenure of a building, between rental or condos for sale. 
Wow. Uh, so, and again, the market has been sort of uh, taking care of that, and, and people have been looking selectively. And really what's driving it, I think, is the appetite of investors. If someone wants to build rental, they need to be prepared to take a lesser return to build a long-term investment and compete with condo, which is a hard thing to compete with. So, right. yeah, the, I think there's a lot of good thinking taking place. We just haven't seen a real action plan of how to get rental. And, you know, I think the feds and, and the province and the municipality are working on how to work towards affordable housing and how to support Toronto community housing. But there's a market rental piece of it that should be more widespread than just at the high end of the market. And those type of things can be helped in a meaningful way by some changes that have yet to be put in place. So is the industry advocating for government support? And I don't mean handouts, but sort of more favorable taxation structures or incentives for building apartments? The rental industry is always sort of uh, trying to make a case of, of why they should be seen as an important piece of the economy and something that should be supported. You know, in the past, it's an industry that's really sort of, number one, because you are housing people, it's highly regulated. Right. Uh, on top of that, the response in the past has been, uh, when rents get too high, to throw uh, more meaningful rent controls in place. Yeah, uh, so there's a long-term history of of insecurity and discomfort um, from apartment building owners because in the past, in times when there was legislation that was helpful to making sense of building rental, people built rental and then had the rug pulled out from under them by having more uh, stringent uh, rent control legislation put in place and really hurting the investments that they had made based on the the legislation that was in place in the time. So there's a lot of work that has to be done, number one, to confirm, and it's been working the last few years, don't get me wrong, the vacancy decontrol and, uh, and the fact that it stayed in place through both um, conservative and liberal governments in this province um, has been seen as something that's helpful for upgrading the housing stock and moving the market towards a level where we could support building new rental. I think that's been great, and I think it's commendable that people finally saw the light that we need to have that kind of incentive for people to invest in their buildings. But if we want to get more and we need more uh, purpose-built rental, I think we need to work together, uh, and the industry has more to say, uh, but there really needs to be some serious advancements in terms of how to get more mid-market uh, and when I say affordable, I, I don't mean social housing because right. that's something that's hard to make a business case for unless you really put a strong uh, you know, tax incentive base for the private sector. 100%. And at the moment, yep. it seems to be something that the public sector wants to continue to be involved in. But even at market housing, that's not at the top end of the market. Uh, to make things affordable in line with the average uh, income in the city, there needs to be incentives to, to make sense of building more rental. Yeah, you were talking about investment in, in, in the buildings. From a developer's perspective, I would assume if if the investments are made, you know, prudently over time, they're going to capture some of the appreciation for, from the buildings themselves, right? I, is that playing into some of the investments that the hope is that these buildings will be worth more in the future if they're properly maintained? Everybody invests with the hope that things are going to be worth more, but you know, a big part of why people own apartment buildings is for the stability of income, okay. right? It's a uh, it's rare that you get to own something where there's a uh, 1% vacancy in the market. You know when you buy an apartment building, even if the returns are low, you're always going to keep it full and you're always going to have good quality residents. This is a city that's known uh, for having good quality residents who take care of their buildings because, you know, where are you going to move to? If you 
if you don't behave and uh, and you need to find a new home because you've been disrespectful to the property that you live in and to your neighbors. So I think in general, we've got a fantastic rental community and people like it because they, they, they build a new building and they know for the next 50 years they can count on a slow growing um, solid stream of income. And, and that's, you know, uh, an important thing for investors. Um, you know, stocks go up and down in value and interest rates go up and down, but having a long-term income-producing asset for people who are committed to the responsibilities of prudent management, I think is a really good thing. Over time, rents uh, move up. Operating expenses uh, typically don't move up in any crazy way. It's an easy business to budget, so people like the stability. And the returns are low, but the but it's an asset that's highly sought after. And people know that um, if I ever want to sell it, there's a deep market for people who want to purchase apartment buildings. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. That's all the time we have. Uh, we'll, we'll hear back from you again next month. Look forward to it. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about the mindset for curing chronic pain on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Vital Directives is a center committed to helping people ignite their innate healing power and remove the barriers of fear that keep them in pain. Through changing their client's mindset and teaching them to connect with their body, the Vital Directives step-by-step process helps them focus, feel safe, and get immediate relief. Their process involves removing the physical limitations induced by chronic pain while creating personalized, high-level self-care and preventative measures. They believe that significantly reducing chronic pain is just the first step. Through powerful physical exercises and mindset shifts, coupled with solid support system, they inspire people to transform from the inside out. For more information, visit their website at vitaldirectives.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Roxandra Mitria is the founder of Vital Directives, a leading center for vibrant and healthy living, preventative health, wellness, growth, and rejuvenation. At Vital Directives, they want you to awaken your body and celebrate life. Roxandra has an unwavering belief in each person's inherent capacity for healing. Having had her own experience with the limitations created by chronic pain, she created a unique process that allowed her to heal her body. She has dedicated her professional life to teaching her clients the process that will ignite their innate healing capacity, significantly reducing chronic pain while developing the skills to create and maintain pain-free, active lives. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jamie. So you've spent many years treating people for their pain, and you've joined us today to discuss all about what you've learned and how you put it into practice, right? Yes, indeed. So let's start at the beginning. How did you come to the realization that there's a connection between the mindset and dealing with chronic pain? I think, first of all, uh, it started with my own body, um, as I had many injuries in my feet and my knees when I was uh, very young. 
And then all that limitation created a lot of trouble in my lower back that culminated with uh, a herniated disc when oh, wow. I was 28. At 28? At 28, yes. So I understand pain from the inside out, so to speak. I realized that I had to figure out a way to make my body feel better because at the time, the things that I was trying were only helping me in a limited way. So I started to really pay attention to my body to okay. understand what I was feeling, how, what the directions I was giving to my body, what my body was doing with them at the time. And then I also realized that as my body was healing, if, if there was a, a going back, like a step back that felt to me like a step back, emotionally, I would get a little bit distraught. Right. So I started to pay attention to my emotions as well. And I realized that there was a great value there of actually paying attention and allowing the waves of emotion to roll through me, whatever they were at the time. And if I didn't fight that process, then uh, my body would go into a big healing step forward. Okay, so it sounds to me like there's a little bit of mindfulness going in there. Uh, is that what you're talking about? Sort of being in the moment and noticing without judgment, you know, what your feelings are regarding your pain and the process? Yes, absolutely. The, this is, I think, the most important part because then what I realized I was doing at the time and what most people out there trying to heal their bodies are doing, they are giving directions to their bodies. They're right. only instructing, 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 but they're not taking the time to see what the innate intelligence of the body is giving them back. So what do you mean by that? What sort of things were you noticing that, what, what sort of feedback was your body giving you? Here's an example. I was working with uh, with my back and with my lower back. And one day I had a big breakthrough in, in movement. Like I was able to do a thing that before was really limited. Right. The next thing I knew, I just started to cry, like completely crying without understanding what it was all about. Right. Um, it lasted about two or three days. But I realized that if I allowed that process to go through me, the emotional part to go through me, then my body felt calmer. Right. So I started to pay attention to the fact that there was something in me that needed to, to, to release. So this emotional release, how does it tie in? Is that part of mindset? Is that, is that what you mean? Or there, there are three. The way I work involves three components. There's okay. the physical aspect where there, there's very precise, highly intelligent exercises that are very effective. Right. Physical exercises. So like the rehab type of exercises yes, that you would do. Yes, that you do with your body, physical stuff. Mm -hmm. Step one, two, three, and so on. Then the mindset part has to do with recognizing what the beliefs are about the body, um, the body about its healing process and capacity. Hmm. and seeing where you stand there. And then the third part is the emotional part that has nothing to do. It's just emotions that are trapped in the body that if they stay there, they can impede our healing process. How, how do they impede the healing process? Well, in with respect to healing the physical body, especially if we're talking about pain that's been there for a very long time, right. fear is related right. to that. A lot because what happens if you suffered for a long time right now you don't believe that you can heal anymore you're starting to think what's going to happen in two or five or ten years right so you start to get very afraid fear is a very strong emotion that creates an instant release of stress hormones 
in the body. Sustained over really long periods of time, the, the, the level of hormones is not processed well by the body. So all these emotions get trapped at the chemical level in our tissues, mainly in the connective tissue. Right. So somebody who's experiencing, let's say, arthritic pain or issues with knees or hips or ankle joints, if you're fearful that you're never going to get better, that fear actually manifests in the reality that you're not going to get better. That's true. That's true. And also, discharge of of stress hormones in the connective tissue um, creates a lot of limitation, physical limitation, a lot of tightness. Right. The area that's in trouble will not will not allow any movement, any release, and the mind will not allow it to move either. Right. So it's it's physiologically changing you, but it's also changing your expectations, too, I would imagine. Right. Like yes. the whole aspect of chronic pain is this notion that it's just not going to go away. Yes. Uh, and how do you deal with that emotionally? That that part has to do with the belief. Right. What what your beliefs are about, what your body is capable of doing. The body is capable of healing almost anything. But if you believe at a deep level that First of all, there's something wrong with you. Nobody figured it out. You don't have what it takes. The body's failing you. Then if that's your belief, then that belief will not allow it to move forward. And and that's sort of what you've learned in the process about how to overcome fear, right? Yes. What else have you learned about how to overcome this fear that prevents us from healing ourselves? Well, what's another very important point has to do with the fact that emotions, if we understand that they're they're just something that that brings us our attention to our body yes and if we are allowing them to go through us in waves yes then they get processed very fast they're not meant to be stuck there for five years or 20. okay so um the body has the capacity to process the emotions in about 90 seconds from the moment the stressor has been released and the hormones are running through the body in 90 seconds the body's equipped to to deal with it so are you teaching people how to deal with with this fear as part of the healing process like how to how to sort of separate the fear from what is actually physically manifesting in the body right yes yes how to deal with fear how to examine their mindset and then we give them the steps to start to shift that mindset towards a health-promoting mindset, plus the physical exercise. So what sort of things do they have to change in their mindset? Is, is it a belief system? Is it expectations? Is it dealing with fear? What sort of things is it? In their mindset, let's say if their belief is something like, well, my body cannot heal, right. or my body cannot do this because it hasn't done it in 15 years, right. then basically we actually start to work at the physical level to, te- to show them physically that the body can do it, and then something changes in their mind. If something changes in their mind, then their fear level goes a little bit lower, so they're a, a little bit less stressed, which creates a little bit more movement in their body, so then the next exercise works better. So it's, it's a circle, it's like a three... Three interlocking wheels that work together, the physical body, the mindset, and the emotional um, responses. Yeah, I think we should identify for the listeners, what sort of pain uh, do you deal with at your clinic? What what sort of ailments do people come to you with that you're able to help them with? Chronic back pain and shoulder, knee pain, ankle pain, hands and wrists and necks and um, it's, we think that, okay, this is the part that's hurting, but Plato said that unless the whole gets better, the part cannot get better. So we work with the whole person, not only with their whole body, 
right. in the same time, but with their mindset and with their emotional system as well. So, you know, sometimes my an- my knees or my ankle or my hip hurts. So if I came to you, mm-hmm. at first, you know, if there's real pain, you have to deal with that on an emergency yes. basis, right? Yes. Yes, we have um, what we call an emergency, um, emergency strategy that we teach our um, clients first. That's the first thing they need to start doing in order to release the, the stress in the body and in the mind. And that's a calming process for the body. And then from there, um, we have a stabilizing time when we work to uh, make all the changes that um, their bodies did to make them stick now. And then in about 6, 12, or 18 months, we actually start to put in place preventions prevention measures. Okay, so beyond the initial, like, typically how long would it take for people to deal with their initial pain? Is it, is that weeks, months, or? It depends. We have, our programs are a minimum of six months because you cannot undo something that's been there for years and years. Right. In two, three weeks, in two, three sessions, that's not realistic. That just doesn't work. Right, and then from there, you're you're looking, as you said, to more long-term strategies and preventative mm-hmm. measures, right? Yes, yes. And, and is that sort of advice or training or exercises? How does that manifest? Um, there, there are exercises. All our clients have home programs, have travel programs, have uh, emergency programs. So they all—it's it, an education. It's an education in the physical body. It's an education of the mindset, and then education at an emotional level that gives the people the tools to to be healthy as they age. That sounds fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Will you come back again and tell us more? I would love to. We've got to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll learn how to travel like a holistic nutritionist on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural Liquid Greens. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Megan Horsley is a registered holistic nutritionist, blog writer, and recipe developer. She's passionate about helping her clients discover their best selves with a holistic approach to their well-being, with delicious food, movement, and thoughts. Megan loves witnessing the transformations that unfold. 
She's a knowledgeable and entertaining writer, and she wrote a great article in the April issue of Tonic all about healthy, holistic traveling. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Good. So people are planning their spring and summer travels. We were just chatting off air. I am planning a trip to Paris, where I expect it will be quite difficult to maintain a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle. I actually am planning to do the exact opposite. As you should, right? right? I imagine a lot of croissants in your future, for sure. And cheese and wine. (laughs) But you have some tips for people for traveling to keep them healthy Mm -hmm. and, you know. I think we should get to them. Absolutely. So So what's your number one tip? The number one is water. And if you're a client of mine, you know that I sing the praises of water all the time, whether you're traveling or just in everyday life. Reason being, when you travel, especially when we're up at that high elevation on the plains, there's less moisture in the air. And so we actually get very dehydrated on the plane. Yep. Right. So one of my top tips going into the airport even is bringing an empty water bottle. So bring a stainless steel or glass one. Right. Stainless steel is probably better for travel. So make sure it's empty so that you don't have to dump it out and go through the whole rigmarole with the security. Right. It's a bit of a pain. Yes. (laughs) I've had my run-ins with Homeland Security. Yes. And so so the good thing these days is that we're seeing a lot of airports actually have filtered water in the airports, like a water fountain. Right. Generally, they're reverse osmosis, which isn't really my my top pick. If you go back to our hydration chat we had last year, reverse osmosis will remove everything, which sounds really good, but you're also losing those minerals, right? So it's still a step up from tap water. So you can definitely bring your water in, fill it up after security. The other option you have is to take your water or your water bottle on the plane with you and ask the flight attendants to fill it for you. So generally on planes, we also have filtered water these days as well. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So again, you can ask around if you're really curious, but it beats out the, you know, five, ten dollars you might spend on on a plastic water bottle on the other side of security. True. So you're saving the plastic there and you're also getting some decent water on the plane. Yeah. And I would say also If you're worried about dehydration, and it's always an issue for me when I fly, Mm -hmm. don't drink alcohol. Even if you're a nervous flyer, and I'm not a great flyer, but I know enough not to drink alcohol. And number two, probably step away from the coffee or anything with caffeine in it too. Absolutely. uh, When you're flying, if you want to remain hydrated. Yes. Those would be my two additional tips. Yes, yes. Great tips. And let's say you slip up a little bit and you do have that alcohol. You can have two glasses of water for every drink that you have, right? Right. So that's all But if you're going to do that, sit on the aisle so you're not annoying the person (laughs) when you keep having to go to the bathroom, right? Don't be that person. Don't be that person. (laughs) And, you know, I like having the aisle seat, but I was traveling with a family member who said that he should be sitting in the aisle seat like he didn't articulate why mm-hmm. he should be sitting he in the aisle and I didn't yeah. a- no I didn't ask <laughs> on the way out I took the aisle and he was in the middle and he got up 10 times during the flight and I realized <laughs> on the way back as much as I like the aisle seat he had to have it on the way back yeah. so you have to think about you have to be strategic <laughs> yes absolutely that's a health hint too yeah all right so what's tip number two so tip number two is again such an obvious one but vegetables and so again we were talking about paris um i've been to spain a couple times myself mm-hmm. and the first trip i went i fell in love with the serrano ham 
Yep. Have you have you had serrano ham? I was in Spain last year, and I will say this: there's a shocking lack of vegetables in Spanish yes. cuisine. Yes, yes, it's you, true. You can eat very well. The food is delicious. Don't get me wrong; I love Spain. Absolutely. But I was literally shocked. They don't believe in salads, side vegetables. They looked at me quizzically, and I know my Spanish isn't good, and I'm trying to do hand motions. No vegetables. Sorry, go no, on. No, so you, well, you'll get the patatas bravas, right? Yeah, the fries that, that, yeah, with the, the f- sauce, beautiful, but you know, not, really, not, not, not quite the roughage we're yeah. looking for, right? right? And yeah, the other thing I noticed too is, I mean, you can get the stuffed peppers with cod. That's still a step up, but right. no salad. So if you can find it, if you can request it, definitely go for it. Or let's say you're staying in an Airbnb yep. and you buy your own groceries from the grocery store. Right. Let's say you're having at least one salad a day, just so that you are getting those greens in, some fries. So things keep moving. And, and in fact, when we travel now, uh, as much as we like having things done for us in hotels, we do go to a lot of apartments mm-hmm. and it is much easier to eat healthy, particularly if you can pop down to the store and get fresh fruits and vegetables. Exactly. What are your thoughts about, you know, there's some places you're traveling to and you don't have to worry about the water or the vegetables, but those are t- one and two for you. Mm-hmm. But some people will be traveling to climates where there's bacterias and things that are different. Right. So how do you cope with with those issues like because you still want to eat healthy you still want to eat healthy yes so one thing you can do is definitely bring a good probiotic and good digestive enzyme so full structive full spectrum digestive enzyme right and why is that well we've talked a lot about probiotics on this show Um, we know that when you have beneficial bacteria in higher amounts in your body those will crowd out the bad bacteria right Right. Um, so that can help you Um, the other thing too is with the digestive enzymes you'll have some help breaking down new bacteria um, that you're coming into contact with. So I'm not saying that this is the the end-all be-all of of encountering new bacteria into your body, but it can definitely help um, when you're trying out new foods. Right. And if you're going to try fruits and vegetables, let's say you're going to a country that's maybe notorious or known for having water issues, Mm -hmm. think about it's not just the water you're drinking, it's the water they're using to wash and clean the food that you're eating. So if you want to be super safe, you might eat fruits and vegetables that have rinds or peels on them. So even if, you know, like a banana, for for example, is great because you peel off the peel and presumably the bacteria doesn't get through the skin. Exactly, right? And there are also a lot of pesticides in the outside of those peels. Same with avocados. Those are another another good option where you can just peel off that skin. And also, I mean, if you're up for it, you can bring your own filter, Right. Some people will do that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much, I've, you know, everybody's traveling light, right? Like everybody's, right. Got, everybody's got their carry on. If you're bringing filters, you're going, you're These going to badger check. <laughs> These days they can be really small, right? Okay. So I'm not saying bring your, your full on right. countertop system, right. uh, but you can bring smaller travel filters. Okay. So other than probiotics, which you mentioned a moment ago, what other supplements would you recommend for people that are traveling? So I think... A major issue we experience with traveling is jet lag, right? We're changing time zones. And, you know, with travel just for for fun or travel, if you're an executive, something that you do on a regular basis, getting proper sleep is extremely important and it will help you enjoy your trip more and be a little more alert, right? Let's say... Again, if you are an executive. So um, for travel specifically, if you have the ability to, um, you can try to change your sleeping schedule a few days before. But let's face it, that's pretty tough. Uh, The other option is to introduce melatonin. Okay. Right. So melatonin is the hormone that makes you feel sleepy at night. So it works in tandem with cortisol, right, which is generally higher first thing in the morning and peters off throughout the day. Melatonin 
around the same time, let's say 6 to 8 p.m., generally starts to rise in the body, and this is what makes us feel sleepy. So again, if you're going to um, if you're going to a spot where there's going to be seven, eight hour difference or more, right. um, melatonin will really help you sleep on the plane. So I would say start small, um, even starting with three milligrams or five milligrams, because it can make you feel quite groggy the next day, right? Would you say start the melatonin before you're traveling? or If you have the time, right? Like if it's not going to affect your work schedule and that sort of thing, if you can try it out just to see how much your body needs needs um, in order to have a, a good quality sleep, try it out. If not, then you're, you're a little stuck trying it on the plane, but that's fine too. You know, if you travel a lot, you'll know for the next time how much you need. Right. See, my advice would have been to hit up somebody with prescription drugs like Ativan, <laughs> which is my go-to when I'm traveling, and just conk yourself out for the overseas flight. Right, right. Which, which, you know, I suppose you should not be advocating on a health and wellness show, but I'm just being honest. Right, being honest. Being and- honest and, and forthright. Even though I'm Mr. Health and Wellness, it doesn't mean that everything I do is 100% kosher. Sometimes I'm off the rails and my flight regimen I don't think qualifies as health and wellness. Right. This is where this is the part of the show where we put in that fine print uh, disclaimer. Yeah, exactly. Please contact your doctor. Yeah. (laughs) Please contact your doctor to get the sleeping pills that you need for the plane. (laughs) Okay. So we've discussed the flight. Now you've landed. Now you're in your destination. What advice can you give for people once they've landed and they're in their hotspot? Yes. So I would say don't be fearful of all of these uh, healthy tips that we gave you. You know, if you don't hit all of the marks, that's fine. Yes. You know, try as best as you can. The ultimate goal is to make sure you, f- you feel good while you're traveling. Right. But make sure you enjoy the food of the country that you're visiting wholeheartedly. You know, try new things and um, really have a great time and, and focus on, on learning about the place that you're visiting. Right. You know, they're going to have foods that are in season. Ask about what the locals are eating. Yes. You might find yourself, for example, eating snails, which is where I found myself in Spain. It was snail season last year. I surprisingly didn't have snails in Spain. Yeah, no. And it was delicious. And the other thing is too, like we talked about sleep and we've talked about food and we've talked about water, but let's talk about exercise. Don't use your trip as an excuse not to keep up your healthy exercise. Obviously, you know, you're not necessarily going to want to go to the gym if you're only have a few days in whatever city. But I think, you know, making sure that you're walking. Yes, walk uh, everywhere. You can get thousands of steps in every right, day. Right, exactly. Yeah. Just doing that will help your digestion, will help your sleep, and will help you have a good trip so you can enjoy all the wine and cheese and snails and everything else you're Yes, exactly. Fantastic. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. We're going to hear back from you next month. Reasons why we should garden, right? Yes. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to debate what are the reasonable expectations of our yogis on the tonic. Our new sponsor, Camprev, is a great natural health company, homegrown right here in Canada. What I love about Camprev is that they take the time to choose the best quality ingredients and formulations that empower Canadians to take an active role in their own health and wellness. New from Camprev is their unique vitamin K2 called K2 Vital. It's produced from soy-free plant oils in a way that yields a pure 100% trans form of K2 that is 100% usable by our bodies. They also take a lot of care to produce educational resources. To learn more about this misunderstood vitamin, you can download their ebook at vitamink2.ca. 
If you're a regular listener to The Tonic, you know that each year I host a fantastic yoga festival called OMTO. It's a full day of outdoor yoga, movement, and mindfulness classes in celebration of the summer solstice. Please join presenting sponsors Tonic Magazine and the Lung Association Ontario at the Distillery District on Sunday, June 23rd for a truly magical day. For more information, please visit omto.ca. That's O-M-T-O This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest is local yogi Jody Fishstein. She's a mixed lineage yoga teacher who loves the many aspects of Ashtanga, Prana Flow, Vinyasa, and Yin Yoga. For Jody, being a mother of four opened the gates of empathy. With the practice of deep listening, she's able to better understand her yoga community. Jody wrote a great article for the April issue of Tonic Magazine all about the expectations that your students and clients might have for you as a yogi. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you've been a yoga instructor for how many years? Um, almost 11 years. Right. So you understand the expectations of leading a class. And I've, I've taught some spin classes, but not yoga. It's a little bit different because yoga is a lifestyle. Right. So what are some of the things that are expected of a modern yogi? Well, I thought about that question before, and I think that the expectations are vast. I have expectations when I'm a student, and so I think I can probably give a very simple answer, but it's really a bigger answer for more people to add. But my personal experience as a teacher is that students expect me to show up on time, be kind, be available, be informed, have an ability to hold space for them, for their practice, and to really encourage them to really be the best they can be in, in that moment. Okay, that, and that's the easy stuff, leading the poses and sort of being mm-hmm. there and, and being the authority and, and creating a welcoming environment for somebody who might be new to yoga so that they can sort of do what they need to do. But there's more to it now, isn't there, in the modern age? Well, over the years, I realize it's not just clinical. It's not just sharing the poses, which is important, of course, for safety, but really, it is about holding space. I still see it as like my living room. When I when people come into my class, I want everyone to feel like treasured, like a treasured guest. And there are situations where I've been a student and I've walked into spaces that were very clinical and cold, but very effective. But I think it's probably a preference of mine to feel really cozy, comfortable, welcome, and not to be over micromanaged or to be told how to move my body. But instead, we invite students to move in ways that feel good for them. Are there any expectations to sort of go beyond the, the four walls of the class? Like, do you need to be on as a yogi 24-7? You know, I think I can't even attempt to define yoga or a yogi or what that means because it's such a personal thing. But I do try to be the best I can be. And I do try to always be available for my students um, before and after class. And quite often, I I enjoy giving them uh, a sense of mentorship, too. So we have um, a teacher. I'm on a teacher faculty where we're teaching um, students how to become teachers themselves. So then I realized that it's a mentorship role, too. And and to really inflect that kindness, it's it's everything because it's the foundation of trust. And I feel that if someone's really cozy with me, they're more inclined to learn and be open to things with a beginner's mind. I think, you know, I mentioned that I teach spinning. So when you're in a spin class, you're, you know, you're a DJ and, and, and you're, you know, you're leading a class and trying to get them to give as much effort as possible. And, and then, you know, there are sort of other practices 
that are like that, you know, like hit classes, fitness classes. But yoga is a little bit different because a lot of what you're trying to do, uh, there's a spiritual element to it for a lot of practices. And there, there's it's more of a lifestyle. Right. So it, it, it builds. It's not just the physical movement. There's more to it. Right. I agree with you completely. I was also a spin instructor, so I know that that job is huge in terms of inspiration, motivation, and to get people's heart rates up. It's so important. And we have elements of that in yoga. You know, I think there's a time to rest and there's a time to meditate and there's a time to really, it's a yin-yang thing. It's um, feeling both, feeling your strength and feeling the calmness. I think that for me, a well-balanced practice will have everything. Some of the qualities that you're describing of uh, fire, that feeling of fire in the body and spin, we can feel that as in a warrior practice. Sure. Right? Then we also want to feel a meditative practice. And we want to really, for me as a teacher, my goal is to join, always keep that integration, you right. know, so that everyone, there's something for everyone. Which of the expectations that we've discussed from, from a student are reasonable and, and which aren't? Well, it depends on the teacher, but in term, I can only answer for myself. And I would say quite often, People will ask me about medical concerns and how that will affect their practice or if they should avoid certain poses. And I will offer to the best of my ability, you know, certain poses that are safe. But really, the best thing a teacher could do is acknowledge that they're not physicians and always refer that student back to their physician first. For example, I just had knee surgery. Can I get back on my mat, you know? Now, am I ready to jump? Am I right. ready to do all these things? And I'm like, you know what? Let's speak with your physician. Find out and right. see if what, what the range of movement is. And then from there, I can work with what your doctor says. And it's so important to keep reminding students of this, to always refer back to a physician for any kind of sporting injury or health concern, anything that they feel is questionable. Right. And in the article you wrote about a sort of a conversation you had with one of your students who was questioning you about what was in your water bottle after yeah. class, right? So I, I, I kind of wanted to go into that area. So maybe you could explain for the listeners what that was about. Well, just like all human beings, we, we, we tend to, to judge things. We do. All of us do that. And, and sometimes we're aware, sometimes we're not. But yeah, sometimes I feel like, you know, if you're a yoga teacher, you're, you're put on a pedestal to always be the perfect citizen and, you know, no failure, no room for failure. Right. And what was this instance? Like, what was that conversation? Well, for those some... who didn't read the article, which is fantastic okay. <laughs> and tonic, maybe you can explain a little, you don't have to get a, you know, a direct quote, but what was the gist of it? Well, basically, um, some teachers really uh, believe that caffeine is a, a drug, a stimulant, it's artificial right. stimulant, and that it's not appropriate to consume while you're in this type of practice. So I drink a lot of espresso and I always am mindful that people feel that I shouldn't. And so this particular student just wanted to, you know, kind of school me on that. Let me know that, you know, caffeine, this is artificial stimulants, not appropriate as a teacher. And I just felt like, okay, that's your opinion, but to each his own. But yeah, that was, that stayed with me for a few years. Yeah. The, the sense of feeling judged and then feeling embarrassed that I chose to defend drinking coffee. Every April in the magazine, we don't do this anymore, we would run a fake article for April Fools. And one year we wrote about uh, non-GMO and organic fruits and vegetables in a way that suggested it was the exact opposite. We were suggesting that that it was actually healthier if you if you didn't have the non-GMO. And, and we got, I had never received so many angry phone calls and emails. You cannot joke about something as serious as our food. 
And I thought, okay, now my perspective is you can joke about just about anything. And I didn't really see it as being an issue, but people do get sensitive about certain issues. And I, and I, I agree with you. I think they're entitled to their opinion. It isn't necessarily going to change who I am. And I'm still going to do an April Fool's joke if I feel like it, because it's my magazine. <laughs> um, but uh, do you feel that you've had to change the way you sort of approach your practice as an instructor as a result of sort of these judgments that, that may creep in from your students? Well, I think it's helpful for me, or at least my mom told me I was always very laid back. So I never assumed the role of authority. So I'm open to their suggestions and I'm open to a friendly debate on it. But I don't think that I'm going to put myself as the authority on yoga. I'm doing the best I can. I'm having a great time with it. I'm hoping that I inspire others to stay on the mat. And, you know, as a general rule, I don't tend to be concerned with what people are drinking or eating. Right. And, you know, nor do I think it's my responsibility to govern people about what they choose to drink in the morning. Did the transaction make you reluctant to sort of interact with people, not just in class, but on social media? Because social media has been such a huge part of, of what anybody does. If you're leading a class and you're trying to drum up support or if you have events or things like that, you're on social media. Right. Have you changed the way you, you, you present yourself? I think that I'm a little clumsy on social media. I'm not as savvy as some of the millennials, for sure. I do the best to share what I think is important in yoga. And sometimes I, you know, I may cross a line and say and, and really assert my opinion, in which case I've had plenty of resistance when I put out my own opinions. But I think that's what it's there for. If it's a public format and we put an opinion out there, people have the right not to agree. Right. But not to deflect and get emotional. Just keep it objective and to the point. I'm all about facts. Right. And so if I have an opinion, I'm I'm going to probably ha- it's going to be well researched. And I'm not going to deflect to emotion an emotional response. I think that if we're talking about a specifics in yoga, then yeah, I'd rather come from a place of being informed. And if I don't feel that I'm informed on a topic, I'm going to listen. I think social media has created a situation, I call it uh, tribalism, where, you know, people live in their little echo chambers and they only want to read or see what they agree with and they're not comfortable being challenged in their beliefs. And I say beliefs because a lot of what they're arguing about online is opinion-driven as opposed to fact-driven. And I don't think it's helpful. I mean, social media is great for a lot of things and it, it sort of levels the playing field for people who might not have access to traditional media to get their information. So there's a larger good with social media, but I think it can also be a danger. Do you see social media as aiding your cause in yoga or do you see it as a hindrance? I think that you're absolutely right with your touching on. Everyone's very sensitive with certain topics and it's very easy to be triggered and also to trigger someone. So for that very reason, we brought into our studio trauma-informed yoga. And I think it's training that's essential for everyone because it just it just helps us understand the way we speak has an impact on people. And so plenty of people don't agree with me. Sometimes I'm very happy to say that they can enlighten me in something, right? And I'm yeah. open to the concept People that enlighten me lately are my children. They're Generation Z. They have a very different outlook on life. Do they ever? In some ways, interesting. I find what they're saying a little more open-minded than the way I was raised. So there's something to be said for some of the thought. Some of it I don't quite frankly agree with. And I think that that's okay. I agree. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For great articles written by Megan Horsley and Jody Fishstein, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. 
Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss the natural treatment of asthma, spring cleaning tips for your kitchen, aging mindfully, and cooking must-haves, should-wants, and don't-needs. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.